You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If you have Bibles, as Anthony said, we're, uh, we're in 2 Kings 6 this morning. If you're using those black hardcover Bibles, uh, page 312 is where you can find our text today. As you're turning there, though, p- picture, picture this scene. Somewhere in the Irish Sea, the USS Montana, this really large naval ship, spots an unidentified vessel on its radar. And they're on a collision course. They're on a collision course. So the radio officer of the USS Montana sends the first message. He says, this is the USS Montana. Divert your course 15 degrees to the north. After a moment, the reply comes over the radio. Negative. Divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid collision. The captain of the USS Montana steps in, takes the radio from the radio officer, gets on the radio. You will divert your course. Negative, captain. I'm not moving anything. The music in the scene intensifies. Tension's running really high. In this really pivotal moment, the captain one more time gets on the radio and asserts, This is the USS Montana, the second largest vessel in the North Atlantic fleet. You will change your course, or I will be forced to take measures to ensure the safety of this ship. Pregnant pause, and then finally, this is a lighthouse, mate. It's your call. (laughs) Now, this, as far as we know, is not a a real story. Uh, It's only a commercial, actually, for a Swedish outdoors company, of all things, but I think it's a great picture that sometimes we don't see things as they really are. We don't see things as they really are. Even with cutting-edge radar technology, the USS Montana thought it was about to engage an enemy ship, a hostile ship, when actually it was just about to ram headfirst into a, a lighthouse. And left to ourselves, this is our condition too. We are spiritually blind people. We don't see things as... They really are, and God must open our eyes to see. Our text in 2 Kings 6 today shows us how important it is for us to see things as they are, but even more than that, it shows us how much we really do need God to intervene, to open our eyes so that we can see. And so as we're asking God to open our eyes, I'd invite you now to open your ears and to listen to the words of this book that we love. This is 2 Kings chapter 6, and I'll start in verse 1. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan and each of us get there a log and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water and he cried out, Alas, my master! It was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. Verse 8. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God, that is Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. 
And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? One of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Verse 15, When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria, which is the capital city of of Israel. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink. And go to their master. So he, that is the king of Israel, prepared for them a great feast, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master, and the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord God, you have declared in Jesus that your kingdom is among us. And so we ask even now in this moment that you would open our eyes to see it, that you would open our ears to hear it that you would open our hearts to hold it, and then that you would open our hands to serve it. And all of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are spiritually blind. God must open our eyes to see. And two things that there are for us to consider in in today's passage. Uh, First, because we are blind to God's care, we need to see in the small things. Because we're blind to God's care, we need to see in the small things. And then second, because we're blind to God's command, we need to see the unseen. So first, let's talk about seeing God's care in the small things. Uh, Beginning last week where we were in chapter 5, 2 Kings is talking a lot about uh, Israel's ongoing conflict with Syria, with another nation. Last week in, in 2 Kings 5, we met Naaman, and he was a Syrian general. There's lots of wars and conflicts going on between Israel and Syria in these chapters. Next week, we'll talk about Syria's siege of the capital city of of Samaria. But sandwiched in the middle of, of all these wars, sandwiched in the middle of all this international politics, is a short account about a floating axe head. The sons of the prophets, as we read, they need more room. So apparently there have been, been more prophets added to their number. They've outgrown their space. It's a problem But consider how good a problem it is compared to the problems most of the prophets have been experiencing in this 
book so far. When Elijah was, was ministering, a lot of the prophets were hiding out in caves for fear of losing their lives. So now, they're, now the prophets are building, they're expanding. God has been at work not only through Elijah and Elisha, but through, through his people. And so this group of prophets sets out to, to build a bigger place. And as they're cutting down trees for lumber, one of their axe heads flies off uh, the handle of the axe and then into the Jordan River. Now in our day, we might think, well, that's not a huge deal. It's not the end of the world. We can head down to the, the hardware store, pick up another axe. We'll be back to work in no time. Of course, in, in Elisha's day, there, there was no such place. And in this day, actually, iron was really expensive. An iron axe head was really expensive. And the prophet goes on to say, it's not, a, it's not even mine, it's a borrowed axe head. So even if there was a hardware store, he wouldn't have the money to buy it. And because he doesn't have the money to buy it, he can't give it back to the guy who, who lent it to him. So think of it a little bit more like if you were to borrow someone's car and then just utterly total it. That's a little more what this, what this is like. Or if you're a fan of The Office and you saw that episode where Michael drove his rental car into a lake, Remember that episode, those office fans? And, he, and then he realized in the moment he forgot to buy the, the insurance. That's kind of like this. That's like this. But Elisha steps in in that moment. He says, where did it fall? If you remember from last week, the Jordan River is, is kind of nasty. It's, it's not like the clear waters of the rivers of Damascus, like Naaman was, was talking about. And so you can't see the bottom. When the prophet then says, well, about here is where it fell in, and Guy, man, he was all over it this morning. He knew what was going on. Elisha cuts a stick, throws it in the river, and that iron axe head floats to the surface. This miracle can feel trivial. Can it? It can feel trivial. Almost, almost like it's reducing Elisha and the God he serves to some kind of carnival magician. Like, hey, look at this cool trick that I can do. I can make iron float. This also seems like an interruption in the narrative of, of 2 Kings. It's actually not even clear when this account happened chronologically. All we know is that this happened sometime during Elisha's ministry. But in the final form of 2 Kings, as we have it in our Bibles, this account is almost certainly placed here as a reminder to us, to the readers, that in the midst of global political events, things with widespread implications for all of Israel and even all the world, God still cares about individual people. God still cares about individual needs. This is a reminder that God sees us and cares and cares. First and second Kings throughout it is spotlighting Yahweh as Lord of the nations. He is the one true God over all the earth. But we're seeing here, he's not just Lord of the nations. He's Abraham's God. And he's Isaac's God, and he's Jacob's God, and he's Elijah's God, and he's Elisha's God. And now, this unnamed prophet, this little guy, we don't even get a name for this man, but, he, but God is his God too. And that means, men and women, he is your God. He is my God. The Lord of the nations sees me. Left to ourselves, we are blind to God's care, to, to the depth of his personal intimate love that he has for, for each of us. And so God must open our eyes to see him in the small things. I want to ask you this morning, do you believe that? Do you believe that, that, that God sees you? That he cares about you on this kind of individual, personal level? 
Some people, some, some Christians think way too individually. Some people shrink God down and treat him as if he's their personal genie, as if God exists to meet my needs. But I don't think that's most of us in this room. I don't think that's most of us. Most of us in this room actually wrestle with the opposite, I think. That we have such a high view of God and an appreciation of his complete sovereignty, his complete control over all things. Most of us in this room, I think, actually struggle to believe he really does care about me and he really does care about the small things of, of my life. If this story feels like an interruption, that might be because you feel like an interruption. If this miracle feels trivial, that probably is in some way because you feel trivial. Deep down, you think somewhere that that God can't be, God shouldn't be bothered with the everyday mundane problems that I go through in in my life. Oh, that God would open our eyes. In this account of a floating accent of all things, see how intimately God cares for you. The hairs on your head are numbered. The days of your life on this earth are known to God. God knew you even before he began knitting you together in your mother's womb. In 1 Peter chapter 5, the apostle Peter goes on to write, cast all your cares on him. And it's your cares, your cares, not just the the geopolitical events with global implications, it's your cares. And it's all your cares Not just the life and death situations that we go through from time to time in our lives, but all of them. Why? Because as Peter says there, because he cares for you. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. In this instance, God overrules his own natural laws. He he makes iron float to meet an individual need for an individual prophet. And like all miracles, it's not some kind of carnival trick. It's redemptive. It's redemptive. Without money to replace this axe head, this prophet would be looking at a severe consequence, maybe even debt slavery. And so God is intervening here miraculously to keep him free. To keep him free. Now, it may or may not involve overruling natural laws. But men and women, may you see God's care for you in the small things of your own life. When you're exhausted, for example, when you're exhausted, energy for another day of work, of school, of caring for a loved one, that energy for another day might seem small, but that is God giving you the strength to image him as a creator, to to actually participate with him as a steward of what he has made. Or when you get that unexpected bill in the mail, finding a few extra dollars or or getting another bill that's maybe a little bit less expensive than you thought that one was going to be, that might seem small. But that is actually God reminding you the most secure place for you to be actually has nothing to do with your bank account. It has everything to do with you being held, being kept by the one who owns everything. Or when you get to observe just a little step forward in a relationship that's strained or that's broken, that might seem like a small thing. You might not be relationally where you want to be yet. But that is God reaffirming relationships matter You are not a cog in some kind of cosmic machine. You are created for community. And it's not good for you to be alone. And it's God reminding you in that moment, you, image bearer of God, are not alone. You are seen, you are known, you are loved by the one who cares for you. So may God open our eyes to see his care for us in the small things today. Second, second, 
Because we're blind to God's command, we need to see the unseen. We need to see the unseen. In verse 8, the narrative gets back to global events. And Syria is at war with with Israel. Again, the, the chronology is not entirely clear here. But this is most likely, as most scholars, as best they can tell, it's most likely happening somewhere around the year 845 B.C. And if so, that would make Jehoram the king of Israel, and it would make a man named Ben-Hadad II the king of Syria. And in 2 Kings 6, Ben-Hadad is mad. He's frustrated. Because every time he plans a military raid, Israel knows where and when it's going to happen. And so he thinks there's got to be a mole. There's got to be a mole in the ranks. See, as a Syrian, he has only known false gods. He's only known idols who, as the psalmist puts it, have eyes but do not see, have ears but do not hear. He is not familiar with the one true God from whom nothing is hidden. When he discovers then that it's actually not a mole but it's a prophet, he sends his army to to Dothan to capture Elisha. And that move is either desperation or delusion, or both, probably. It's certainly not rational to think that this guy who knows your every move before you make it, it's going to be easy just to capture. Like, sure, we'll get him. Yeah, he won't see that coming. But it's the only thing he can think to do. He's got to do something to take out Elisha, so he sends his army to Dothan. And so when Elisha's servant wakes up the next day, he sees a great army of horses and chariots surrounding the city, and he panics. Alas, my master. And notice, that's actually the same exact thing that the man who lost his axe head cried out back in verse 5. These stories are connected. These stories are connected. God sees us in both the everyday struggles of our lives and in the life and death situations. Cast all your cares on him. Elisha, though, replies there in verse 16, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then he prays this, this great prayer. Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And God opens his eyes and he sees. He might be surrounded by horses and chariots, but they are surrounded by horses and chariots of fire. The, the Syrian army is surrounded by the army of the Lord. Left to ourselves, we are blind to God's command, to his power to his might, to his control over absolutely everything. And so much of the fear that we experience in our lives, so much of the anxiety we have is the direct result of considering only what our eyes can see. There are, at every single moment, think about this, at every single moment, legions of angels, an army at God's command. And there are, in every single moment, unseen spiritual forces of evil. The Apostle Paul goes on to write in Ephesians chapter 6 that that we do not wrestle with flesh and blood. That no matter what conflicts we are experiencing with other flesh and blood people, our ultimate fight is actually not with them, but it's with powers that are working, that are active within this present darkness. And Paul goes on to write there in Ephesians 6 that because of that, we should take up the armor of God. We should always be prepared for this spiritual battle, for this spiritual warfare. Here's the thing. Before we can take up any armor, God has to open our eyes. We have to see the unseen. In other words, we have to not only realize the existence of these unseen realities, but we have to trust in God's utter command over all of it. 
That's what I think so many Christians miss about spiritual warfare. That, that, that the spiritual forces of evil, powerful as they are, are actually nothing compared to the army of the Lord. Satan fell like lightning from heaven. Demons run and flee at even the mention of the name of God. And as John, the apostle, goes on to write, greater is he that is in you, greater is the Holy Spirit that is in you than he that is in the world, meaning Satan. In Pilgrim's Progress, uh, John Bunyan's famous work from, from several centuries ago, it's a famous allegory of, of the Christian life. And there's a part of Christian's journey. Christian is the protagonist, the main character, is journeying to the celestial city. There's a part of his journey where he comes to this narrow passage. And he looks down this narrow passage and he sees these two lions waiting there to attack him. And there's this great line there. John Bunyan writes, The lions were chained, but he saw not the chains. Friends, as God opens your eyes to the unseen, may you not only see the lions, may you see the chains. May you see the chains. May you see God's command of even the most overwhelming, terrifying circumstances that you would ever experience. Because in the end, in, that, in the great battle of the last day, it's actually not a drawn-out, suspenseful affair. We're not left on the edge of our seats wondering who's going to win. The army of the Lord shows up, led by the risen Jesus Christ, and it's over. It's over. God wins. God wins. And we get this little foretaste of that last day in the rest of this passage in 2 Kings 6. God blinds the Syrian army. Most scholars actually think they didn't completely lose their sight in that moment because they still are following Elisha, but they're experiencing some kind of dazed condition, or partial blindness. But this prophet that they came to capture now leads them, like a pied piper, leads this host of captives 10 miles south and into the middle of Israel's capital city, Samaria. But rather than put them to death, as the king of Israel wants to do, the Syrian army is shown mercy. Elisha prays actually the very same prayer that he just prayed not long ago for his own servant. He says, Lord, open their eyes that they may see. And Elisha then orders the king to prepare a feast for them and then to send them home. You see, God is, in, God is so in command of this situation that what began as imminent death, imminent defeat, has now become a foretaste of Isaiah 25, where on the last day, God will prepare a feast for all peoples, where, where those who were once enemies of God and enemies of the people of God will be invited to sit with him at his table forever, and where God will wipe away every tear from every eye. Make Elisha's prayer your prayer. Lord, open our eyes. God, let us see. Give us just a glimpse from time to time of the complete command you have over every circumstance. This week I was talking with a pastor of a, of a struggling church. And in this conversation, I found myself really anxious and frustrated and restless. Maybe a different situation for you, but maybe that resonates. I, I wanted to do something. I wanted, to, I wanted to change the circumstance. I wanted to light a fire under some people. I wanted to say some words that were inspirational we kind of turn things around. A prayer to pray for me in that moment. Lord, open my eyes. Open my eyes. Let me see that it's Jesus who builds his church. Let me see that, that even if some congregations do close, even if some church plants don't make it, the gates of hell will never prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. 
And that those who are with us, those who storm the gates of hell to rescue people from it, are more than those who are against us. This has huge implications on our pursuit of mission, on the, on the way we seek to show and tell the good news of Jesus to the people that we come across in our world. We want people to believe in the finished work of Jesus. We want people to experience his salvation. We want people to, to, to be forgiven of their sin and to be reconciled with God. How much control do we actually have over that? It often seems like there's just so many obstacles in the way. And so we often find ourselves crying out with this servant, what shall we do? What shall we do? This week on Monday night, our elders were at an elder meeting. We were talking about a few people that that actually right now, we are longing to see come to faith in Jesus. On any given Sunday, I know this, this happens in the normal course of our lives as well, but maybe it's helpful for you to know. On any given Sunday, we have a number of people here in this room who are, who are not Christians and who are considering what they believe and are asking really good questions about that. And so actually, if that's you this morning, welcome. You are really, I hope you feel that. You, you are welcome here as you ask the questions that you have. And I want you to know that, that we care about you and we think about you and we, and we actually think about what it's like for you to experience a, a church service like this. Let me also, if that's you, let me confess something to you this morning. Like a lot of pastors, I am way too willing to be manipulative. I'm I'm way too willing to consider manipulation. And here's what I mean. My mind can go so fast to, well, if we play that song, that song is a good one. That tends to be stirring up people emotionally. If we play that song, or maybe if I say these words, Maybe I lean in a little bit to some guilt or, or kind of take a wound that you might have and open it up in a certain way. Or maybe if we ask that man or that woman to lead that part of our service because they're so good at it, they're so gifted at it, maybe that'll convince you. Maybe that would be what actually causes you to, to put your faith in Jesus. I just want to ask you this morning to forgive me for that, where I'm inclined to do that. Because here's the truth. Nothing that we do, nothing that I say can, can ever accomplish that anyway far better, and because, thank God, we have other godly men around that room uh, with us as elders, and it's not just me and my stuff, far better, and what we did on Monday night was to pray like Elijah, oh Lord, open his eyes. Oh God, let her see. Let her see. The most loving thing that any of us can do for another human being is to pray on their behalf, God, open their eyes. In the Gospel of Mark, between the end of chapter 8 and the end of chapter 10, Jesus predicts his death three different times. And in each of those times, the disciples don't see it. They don't get it. Peter, even in one of those instances, rebukes him, tells him he's crazy for saying that. But do you know what bookends those three predictions? You know what bookends it? Two accounts of Jesus giving sight to the blind. Left to ourselves, we are spiritually blind, And I would say to you this morning, we are most blind to the worth of Jesus. We are most blind to why he needed to die on our behalf. We are blind to how much we need his salvation. We're blind to how offensive our sin is to a holy God. We're blind to how corrupted this world and our lives have become because of sin. Oh Lord, open our eyes. And thanks be to God for many of us in this room, we can say, he has he has. Jesus is the one, as we saw, as we see in that, that instance in Mark, who gives sight to the blind. And, and because of his life, death, and resurrection, many of us in this room can say, with that man in John 9, 
I still don't know everything about Jesus. The, 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 the teachers of the law are asking him all these questions. And he says, I don't know. One thing I do know, though. Once I was blind, now I see. Now I see. And even still, we need God to continue to open our eyes. We need God to keep helping us see things as they really are, to see his command over every situation. Even those of us who do see, who have believed, are like the Apostle Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as Jesus is there that night being betrayed, being arrested, some of you might remember the account, Peter draws his sword and Jesus says, put it away, Peter. But do you remember why? Do you remember what he says next? Jesus says, Peter, don't you know that if I appealed to my father, he would at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. You see, friends, the horses and chariots of fire were there in that moment too. They were right there. God is in command of that moment just as every other moment. And in essence, Jesus was saying, oh Lord, open Peter's eyes. Let him see. So men and women, cry out to God today for yourself. Cry out to God on behalf of other people. Blind to God's care, may you see in the small things that the Lord of the nations cares for you. And may you cast all your cares on him. And blind to God's command, may you see the unseen whether for the first time like that man in John 9 or one more time like the Apostle Peter in Gethsemane. May God open your eyes and may you see. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Almighty and loving God, we bless you this morning for the gift of your word. We bless you this morning for the gift of sight that you do open our eyes, that Jesus is the one who opens the eyes of the blind and left to ourselves, we are the blind. We are the spiritually blind. So open our eyes, open our eyes even now as we come to this table. May we see in it the worth of your finished work. May we see in it the anticipation of that day that you gather those who once were your enemies to your table to feast with you forever. May we see the beauty and the worth of Jesus Christ. May we come to him again today. We pray that in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.